This episode of Wartime is dedicated to the memory of Bill Kyler. A member of the powerful Lakota Sioux Nation, the young warrior known as Crazy Horse rose to prominence as a quiet defender of the Great Plains. Faced with a relentless incursion by westward-moving immigrants from the United States, Crazy Horse rallied one of the strongest resistance movements in the history of North America. Beginning with his witness to many terrible atrocities by white soldiers as a child, Crazy Horse would leave a permanent mark on the growing American nation by defeating its greatest commander, George Armstrong Custer, at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. On this episode, we discuss Crazy Horse, Defender of the Plains. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. In Season 4 of the series, we're discussing game changers, who they are, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. You can visit my author's websites for updates on news and events, bradykreitzer.com. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, we move on with our season of Game Changers, discussing one of the most important figures of the American West. Today, we know him as Crazy Horse. Now, most of us know Crazy Horse, at least by name. If you live in the American West, you may know very well what he did. You're probably at least familiar with the name. Of course, what we're doing throughout Season 4 is really filling in the gaps, uh, filling in the holes to, as they say in Jurassic Park, the original, complete the code. I really enjoyed making this episode. It's a very personal episode for me, again, as someone who spent much of my career studying the native peoples of North America and their interactions with empires. This one's a little bit later than that, but one I'm happy to take on, and it comes as a request from Mike Kyler. Mike sent me a very uh, personal email uh, about the passing of his father, Bill, who we dedicate today's show to. So, uh, Mike, thank you so much for the email. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. But Crazy Horse is a really interesting figure for us. And I use that term a lot, interesting, but I really think it's applicable here because we can view him a lot of different ways. I mean, he is a person who, uh, till his last day, really battled the United States of America in terms of its values, in terms of what it stands for. Uh, He and his people viewed the United States uh, as an expansionist, aggressive conqueror. Certainly, he had no love for the American nation. But on the other side, uh, we still revere him for his courage and his bravery, and I think most important, the resistance or the spirit of resistance that he so embodied in his own people. Again, how do we view a person like that? Uh, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. And as we talked about in our Robert E. Lee episode, I'm not here to demonize uh, anyone or hold them up on a pedestal. I just want you to think about 
how we remember, that's a big word in history, remember these people. Now, none of us do really remember him. I mean, we weren't alive in the 1850s, 60s, or 70s. But we all have a collective memory, not only of Crazy Horse, but of the people he fought alongside and probably fought against. So we're going to talk about Crazy Horse today uh, on this episode. And as always, I want to put him in context. What that means is, if you haven't noticed by Season 4 yet, what we're going to do is really build the world around him. We're not going to talk about every specific detail of his life, uh, but we're going to talk about what's going on in the world at the time. And, as a sidebar, uh, how those challenges relate to history as we move forward. Now, to begin with our discussion of Crazy Horse, what we want to clarify is who he is and where he's born into. Crazy Horse is born into the Sioux world. You may have heard that term before, the Sioux. And more specifically, Crazy Horse is born as a Lakota Sioux. And even more specifically than that, he is a Oglala Lakota Sioux. So, if your head is spinning right now, don't worry, we're going to clarify all that. But that's an exercise in complexity in a lot of ways, because I want you to understand that the Indian world that we know, especially the Indian world of the American West, is not as you'd see it in a John Wayne movie. It's not as you see it in a Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, it's not cowboys versus Indians, but it's much more complicated and much more nuanced. And in most parts of our world, daily life, when we see these sort of elements, we kind of give it a once over. We kind of glance and move on. But we're on this podcast right now listening uh, for that reason. We want to go deeper. So let me build the world of Crazy Horse Uh in the 1840s and the 1850s, before we jump into who he is and why he's so important. The Sioux Nation, the nation in which Crazy Horse belonged to, the nation which he will die defending, is one of many native peoples, native nations, that exist in the American West. Now, what is the American West in 1840 and 1850? In my time period, which I study, the American West tends to be uh, something like what is today the state of Ohio and western Pennsylvania. Well, that goes away pretty fast. So the American West is moving by the 1840s and 1850s. And now the American West really is anything west of the great Mississippi River. And even that is beginning to change. The American West is becoming everything west of the Missouri River. I mean, that's the thing about frontiers. They move. But as American society grows a society of carriages and buggies in the future, railroads, and so on. These people will begin interacting with cultures that have existed a certain way for hundreds of years, with traditions that go back thousands of years. We call these people who live in the area today that could be anywhere from as far south as Texas or northern Mexico, as far north as uh, Minnesota, the Dakotas, and parts of Canada. We call these people the Plains Indians. And they are numerous, numerous nations, dozens and dozens and dozens of separate nations with hundreds of subdivisions. You can talk about people like the Arikara, you can talk about people like the Sioux, you can talk about the Pawnee, you can talk about the Arapaho or the Cheyenne, the Blackfoot, it goes on and on and on. What's most important for us is what binds them together. Because everything I've just named is what makes them different. But what's important for us is what makes them common. And what makes them common is the way that they live. 
Now, the thing about the Great Plains is that it's a pretty rough area of North America. And it's rough for a few different reasons. It's very flat, with sweeping fields of grass. But seasons change rather rapidly. And the weather changes rather rapidly as well. You can have very warm, dry summers and brutally cold winters. Anyone who lives in the Midwest today knows that. You can have big sweeping landscapes that look like they never change. I mean, this is a place where you can only live a specific way. And for that reason, at least live effectively. For that reason, for hundreds of years, people lived a certain way. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. How did the Plains Indians live? Well, they lived a few different ways, but everything, everything um, was surrounded by, if it's a solar system, if it's a universe, uh, the sun. And that sun is going to be the American bison or the American buffalo. At the time of uh, the first European Americans or Americans themselves, white Americans, moving to the Midwest, there were millions of buffalo. And the buffalo is a gigantic animal moves on four legs, typically sometimes seven, eight, nine feet high at its back, uh, weighs several tons. I mean, this is an animal that if you kill one of them, you can feed your entire family and maybe an entire village uh, for days on end. You see, the buffalo moved up and down the Great Plains in giant thundering herds, thousands and thousands of massive buffalo. They'd move from south, again, as far south as Texas, to as far north as parts of Canada, and they'd migrate all the time. And this animal was the primary uh, staple of not only food, but shelter and weapons of these Plains Indians. They'd eat the meat. They'd turn the fur into, into clothing. Uh, they'd use the bones to construct their weapons and homes. They even burned the dung of the animal because it burned so much faster than wood. I mean, these people were a subsistence nomadic culture on the Great Plains that completely and entirely needed the American buffalo for their existence to be present. I mean, it's that important. If there is no American buffalo, they don't exist. It's that simple. I want you to remember that. Because as we finish up this episode, we're going to see a world where those animals, even today, remain nearly extinct. And there's a reason for it. Now, again, we talked about commonalities there. Uh, the bison is the center of their life. There's almost a spiritual devotion to the animal. Certainly a spiritual devotion to nature. These people wouldn't have believed in a god of a biblical nature. Uh, but they would have believed in the great spirit that is a creator that binds all living things together. When white people first move into the American West, they viewed it as a very wild place. We even use that term, the Wild West. But for the native peoples who lived there, it was not a wild place. To someone who's from New York or Boston or Pittsburgh, Charleston. I mean, this is a wild place. It's an untamed place. Rivers and animals and bears. A lot of things can kill you in the West. But to these native peoples, that was never the case. Uh, they viewed a harmony in nature. They viewed uh, a, a nature as a tame thing, something they understood. It wasn't tame because they controlled it. They didn't build bridges. They didn't cut down trees. They didn't clear land in massive, massive parcels. It was tame because they knew they were a part of it. And in their mind, there was a system in place. Now that's the world 
in which Crazy Horse, our topic today, is born into. Now, one of the things you have to realize when you do a biographical sketch of a person like Crazy Horse, a Native American, is that the sources you as a historian are traditionally very comfortable with don't work so well. The rules are different. Crazy Horse never put a pen to paper, whether it be a journal or, as we'll see, a peace treaty. He never did it. We've talked about this before, but the written component of language was simply not a function and not a feature of most native life. Again, I wrote a book on a man named Gaia Suta. He was a Seneca chief of the 18th century. He spoke probably 30 languages, but he never wrote a single thing down. Now imagine trying to write a biography on him. I did it. But it's not easy. It takes a lot of creativity. The same rules apply to Crazy Horse, even though he's born about 120 years after my topic, Gaia Suta. By the way, this week my television series Battlefield Pennsylvania premiered to some fanfare. Very cool opening. I hadn't seen that. We talked about Fort Duquesne, a lot of Native American history, a lot of French history, British history. If you live in Pennsylvania, it's going to be on every Sunday night. Different episode, of course. At 9.30 p.m. If you don't live in Pennsylvania, visit PCNTV.com. You can catch it there. Uh, but it's very cool, and I'm very, very proud of it. So it's a very nice supplement to the podcast. In reality, I hope it gets people here, because I think this is where we really break the, the important ground. But at any rate, where else can you get a solid hour of good history on television? Pretty hard to find. That's probably why you're listening to this. But back to Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse, we aren't sure when he's born. It's very likely he's born in the 1840s. Maybe 1841, maybe 1842. Difficult to say. But we know some of the major features of his life, where he is, what he does, and how they shape him, that help us comfortably put him in about that range. We'll say 1840. Again, he's born into the mighty Sioux Nation. And that's a pretty big term because there's many, many designations of the Sioux Nation. To be very specific, he's born into the Western Sioux Nation. We call them the Lakota Sioux. And the Lakota Sioux have a very wide territorial range of control. The far eastern border of their territory is the Missouri River. They go as far west as the Bighorn Mountains. They are probably the single largest Indian polity on the Great Plains at the time. How do they get that big? Well, you could probably guess. One is aggressive expansion. Two is a really strong commitment to being a supreme military power. And three is having an effective system of rule. Now remember, before white people arrived, the Lakota have enemies. But they're enemies of other plains peoples, other nations of the Great Plains. The Pawnee, the Crow, the Arikara to their north. I mean, this is true. So again, don't think you have this peaceful, harmonious native world before Europeans or Americans arrive. It just isn't so. There are old uh, animosities amongst these people, old alliances too. You have to understand that to understand the world in which Crazy Horse comes out of. Now, anyone who's studied Crazy Horse before can tell you a few details, and they are sketchy at best about his early life, and I'm not going to go through them all. But I'll go through the ones I think are most important to really getting a sense of this man here for our purposes on wartime. According to oral traditions, and this is where most of our history of the native world comes from, 
until, of course, white people arrive and begin writing things down in terms of what they see. According to oral tradition, Crazy Horse is born a little bit different than the people around him growing up. His skin is much lighter. He's very fair-skinned. His hair is very curly, like his mother. So, right away, I think Crazy Horse is different. I think Crazy Horse views himself as different. I think, probably as a child, he's probably picked on, he's probably made fun of. That's what kids do about his appearance, his appearance being different. But this idea of Crazy Horse being a loner is something that's going to stay with him. And while it's probably a social detriment to him growing up, when he becomes a man, when he moves into a position of leadership, these very sort of quirky, introverted qualities are going to strike his fellow warriors as something they should admire. This man is different. This is someone we should believe in. So I think early on, Crazy Horse has that background. Uh, and that background is that he's different, that he's a bit uh, socially awkward. Uh, he sort of builds a habit of sitting back and watching things rather than being immediately involved. And this is going to play out in a big way. Now we're going to jump ahead to the year 1854. He's probably maybe 14, 15, 16 years old. And we're going to see one of the first real times that the emerging United States of America, a country that has scratched and clawed its way through first colonization uh, and then revolution and independence and then a long expansion uh, from the uh, Atlantic coastline across the Mississippi. And they're finally moving into the Missouri River Valley, that region, into what is today Nebraska, uh, areas like Montana, the Dakotas, North and South, and so on, into the Indian world. This is a place in America that's changing. It's an America that's becoming flooded with immigrants from places like Ireland and Scotland, from England, from Germany, now some cases from Italy, and so on. And a lot of these old cities, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Charleston, they have a set social agenda. They don't want these newcomers there, so they send them west. You can make a fortune out west. It's in their mind a lot of open land, but we know it's not open at all. We know there's a long-standing uh, hierarchy and tradition uh, of people in that region. The people like, for example, the Lakota Sioux of Crazy Horse. But there's going to be a lot of issues that come along with that. And these issues will not only be seminal events in the American West, but also seminal events in the history of Crazy Horse. So let's talk about the first one. It'll show you how trivial these things can be, but also how powerful they can be. The world of the 1850s in the West is one where cultures are colliding. We kind of talked about that. But one of the ways that uh, Americans like to move West, which is something that the Great Plains peoples never did, was to clear paths, to build roads, and make their travel more simple, make it easier, make it safer. Well, what begins to happen is the American West begins to flood uh, with long wagon trains. Usually, uh, a family would have a wagon with them, maybe a few beasts of burden behind them, sometimes several families. And one of the things that the Lakota start to do, especially in Crazy Horse's area, is begin to pick off some of these stray animals attached to these wagon trains for two reasons. One, because they're very fatty, delicious animals like ox or cow. But also, two, because unlike their fellow native plains peoples, uh, a lot of these immigrants were so terrified by the sight of an Indian that they never retaliated whenever they would take these animals. So that's sort of an uneasy 
uh, homeostasis that exists in the West in the 1850s. White people move West on roads that they build themselves. The native peoples raid them pretty regularly because they know there's very little recourse. Well, one of the things that happens in one of these wagon trains in 1854, Crazy Horse is 14, is that a sickly, lame cow wanders away from the American family traveling west. That cow wanders, as fate would have it, near a village of Lakota Sioux. The Lakota find the animal, they butcher it, they eat it, they use it for fur and skin and meat and so on. I mean, it's a very lucky find for them, because let's face it, this cow was lame, it didn't have a lot of meat or value anyway, and it wandered in their camp. While the man who lost the cow, an American wandered into the Lakota camp where Crazy Horse was, just a 14-year-old. He wasn't involved in this. And the man demanded his cow come back. Now, the problem was they already ate the thing. They stripped it, they skinned it, it's gone. And the elders of the village try to negotiate with this very angry American. Uh, they say, let us give you a horse. A horse is far more valuable uh, than this cow we ate. And the man says, no, I want my cow back. And the chiefs explain, it's gone, we ate it, you're not getting it back. They say, let's give you two horses, we just want peace. This man says, absolutely not, I want my cow back. Now, obviously the guy knows this cow isn't coming back. But it's not about that. It's a clash of cultures. This man wants to show his superiority and his supremacy over what he believes to be a savage, undeveloped peoples. So the man leaves the, Lak the Lakota camp. And he goes to a nearby U.S. military installation. You'll note I didn't say fort or fortress or base because that ain't happening. I mean, it's called Fort Laramie. But the fact is, it's a very minor outpost in the 1850s in a place where a lot of people out east don't care about. Um, but at any rate, there's a man who, who commands the garrison at Fort Laramie named John Lawrence Grattan. He's a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army, U.S. 6th Infantry Regiment. He's a West Point graduate. And whenever this uh, traveler, this settler, uh, came to him and said, These Indians, they stole my cow. Grattan makes the decision he's going to march into that camp and he's going to make an example of the Lakota. When he goes in there, he goes in in a simplistic way, guns ablazing. He's not there to negotiate. He's not there to work out an agreement. He's there to make a point. And the point is that the American destiny, the manifest destiny, the expansion of this country will not be stopped. There's a gunfight. Grattan and his men, about 27 in total, are completely wiped out. 27 soldiers, 31 people total. This event in 1854 becomes known as the Grattan Massacre. Now, was Grattan looking for a fight? We could probably say yes. One of the people who was at Fort Laramie when he left, we don't have the Indian sources on this, but we do have the American sources, said, and I quote, There is no doubt that Lieutenant Grattan left this post with a desire to have a fight with the Indians and that he had determined to take the man at all hazards. Again, in the end, um, a sergeant, a corporal, 27 privates, and a French interpreter were all killed. We call it the Grattan Massacre. Crazy Horse was there. Crazy Horse saw the American method of negotiation. It was non-existent. Now, is that representative of the American nation as a whole? No. Is it representative of American military policy toward the native peoples of the Great Plains? Probably yes. 
And that event's going to shape him. Remember, he's a strange teenage kid. He sits back and watches things. He lets them simmer. He builds opinions and he sticks to them. Very strong opinions. But he doesn't say a lot. And the Grattan Massacre is going to be one of those things uh, that I think really, truly stays with him. In order to continue our discussion, I do have to warn you that we're going to see Crazy Horse do a few things in his teenage years that do need some further explanation. They're very nuanced, very sacred, very ritualistic things that occur in the Plains Indian world. If I just mentioned them in passing, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. So we're going to try and work our way through this. But after Crazy Horse sees the Grattan Massacre, and this is, again, a pivotal moment, not only in his life, but in the American West, sort of the uh, spark of hostilities, he and those close to him go on what we call a vision quest uh, in English. And the idea is Crazy Horse will go uh, into the wilderness, and he'll deprive himself of food and water and sleep, uh, for two, three, maybe four days. I think four days was Crazy Horse's example, but it does happen earlier for some people. What I'm saying is he completely deprives himself of any um, uh, corporeal needs. He lets himself go. He gives his body to nature. And the body breaks down. And the idea in the Sioux culture is that your spirit becomes free when you're uh, giving yourself totally to the earth. And what occurs is, in this what we could say from the outside perspective, hallucinatory state, if you would. Crazy Horse has a vision. And the vision he has is of him unifying not only the Sioux people, so he says, uh, but all of the Plains peoples. And fighting off uh, an ever-present American invader. And in the end, a very sort of strange moment, he feels himself grabbed, held back, suppressed, not by the Americans, but by his own people. And his vision quest ends. Now what occurs after this, and this is where we kind of skim a bit, uh, are several intertribal events. The American, the Grattan Massacre, that's always present. Uh, but again, the Sioux, especially the Lakota, his, his people, have a long history of combat with some of the other tribes around him. Uh, and what occurs is, Crazy Horse, as he becomes 17, 18, 19 years old, and so on, really sort of carves out a niche for himself, battling these fellow tribes. And again, there's probably a long history here. Some we may know about, but a lot of it we'll never know. Because again, Indian sources are just very different than sources we, from the Western perspective, are very used to. But Crazy Horse builds kind of a mystique around himself. And the mystique that he builds is, here's this quiet man, this sort of stone man type of figure. He suppresses the enemies of the Lakota, but he shows fairness as well. He's very brave in battle. He's very tough in battle. He's ruthless when he has to be. But when he's not fighting, he exudes this sort of coolness, this calmness that most people in his tribe really are attracted to. And for that reason, he's given the title of the shirt wearer. Again, this bears out some explanation. The shirt wearer, and there's only four in the Lakota Nation at the time, uh, is not only sort of the high-ranking military commander, but also the leading socialite of the tribe. What do I mean by that? When it comes time to fight, 
in the native community, again, a very different style of fighting. You have groups of individuals fighting for individual glory, not generals and commanders in a hierarchy. But you must lead by example. Crazy Horse does that. He doesn't need a title to validate his military experience and expertise and prowess. But the title of the shirt wearer in the Lakota world is much more than that. He's the person that has to lead by example at home as well. He must be fair. He must be compassionate. He must uphold the rule of law. He must be generous to wealthy and poor alike in his community. He built a reputation fighting his neighbors, the Crow, the Shoshone, the Pawnee, the Arikara, and so on. But now a shirt wearer, he's something much more than that. He has a standard to uphold. And this gets to be uh, very difficult for Crazy Horse, and we wish there was a fairytale ending, but uh, there won't be. Let's get back to this idea of American versus Indian for a bit, make more sense of it. In 1864, you're in the middle of the American Civil War. Typically what's happened from the 1850s to the 1860s is that uh, Indians killed whites and whites killed Indians all over the plains. What acted as a buffer for most of the 1850s were the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army kept them away from each other. It was a mutual thing. There was no good guy or bad guy. But when the Civil War began in 1861, all those troops posted out west had to come back east to fight. And suddenly nobody is separating the Plains Indians from the American settlers anymore. What results is chaos, catastrophe, confusion. Militaries uh, work best because they're disciplined, but when a military force doesn't have discipline, it's a rabble. And that's what we're going to see. In 1864, the 3rd Colorado Cavalry, a group of guys with weapons, decide they've had enough of these Indians, and they're going to strike back. Never mind that the Indians they're looking for aren't really the problem. Never mind that they don't really know who they're looking for. They know they want to kill some Indians, they're going to do it. Again, an actual military force of the U.S. Army would never do this. But this isn't. This is a local militia. So here's what happens. In 1864, along uh, Sand Creek, what we call today Sand Creek, this 3rd Colorado Cavalry will find a collection of Cheyenne and Arapaho uh, women and children in a camp, elderly folks. They'll strike them, they'll attack them, and they'll kill them all. Again, these Colorado Cavalrymen aren't killing warriors. They're not killing... Uh, raiders or scoundrels or anything like that most of the men of the village who they would call that were out hunting they kill women and children they decapitate them there are pregnant women they disembowel this is horrible stuff i mean it's there's a reason i guess we can say the commander of this action was known as the butcher uh but we call this the sand creek massacre 1864 horrible stuff terrible stuff but a reminder of just how uh, the, the basic uh, pleasantries of social life can be eliminated with a snap of a finger. And when there's no military there to keep things organized, uh, there's no law and order, there's chaos. Sand Creek Massacre, terrible event in American history, but also very revealing about the state of affairs in the American West. Now, when this happens, you begin to see an emergence of fighting all over the West between Indian forces uh, and American forces, especially when the Civil War ends. Because when the Civil War ends, you had millions of people 
signing up for the war effort. Well, they all go home. I mean, I think after the Civil War, the size of the American military decreases to about a tenth of what it was at the end of the war. The Confederacy's gone. There's really no threat from the outside, so where's the threat? Well, internally. If you really want to stay in the military, good for you. You're going out west to fight Indians. And a new leader named Red Cloud will emerge. Now, again, Red Cloud is going to be important. Crazy Horse looks up to him as a leader. For Crazy Horse, Red Cloud is uh, everything he wants to be. And there's a fight. And it's a long fight. I think it's where Crazy Horse really learns how to effectively fight the Americans with their weapons and their uniforms and all these things. Well, by the end of it, there's a peace treaty. Red Cloud is the one viewed to be behind the war. And he's beating the American army. So think that. The army that just beat Robert E. Lee. The army that just unified the country. The army that just ended slavery, effectively, by suppressing the southern slaveocracy is now defeated by savages on horseback, in their opinion. They're learning really quickly. Call them savages if you want. Call them animals if you want. They're knocking you around. And there's a reason for it. It's nothing new for us on this podcast. The Indian style of fighting works really, really well against a rigid European style of fighting. The Indian style is very fluid, very individualistic. The European style, which... Uh, the American army's modeled off of, is very stratified, based on orders and discipline. That doesn't work well. But all this time, Crazy Horse is really looking up to Red Cloud. Here's a person I believe in. Here's a person that I will follow. Crazy Horse has followers, but he himself follows Red Cloud. So there is a stratigraphy. There is uh, a hierarchy, but just not one we recognize. It all changes in 1868. In 1868, Red Cloud sits down with uh, representatives of the United States of America and signs a historic treaty. It's the Treaty of Fort Laramie. And the Treaty of Fort Laramie basically says this, an Indian reservation will be created. Indian land that no white people can touch. The Black Hills, sacred to the Plains Indians, will be part of it. Hunting rights will be granted in Montana and Wyoming and the Dakotas. And Red Cloud, this great warrior that Crazy Horse loves so much, signs the agreement. He takes the deal. And he puts down his gun. And he's done fighting. That's the end of the war. Great leaders that Crazy Horse looked up to lined up to sign this agreement. They affixed their names. They affixed their signatures or their symbols or their marks to it. And they look forward to greener pastures. They retire. They enjoy their reservation. But Crazy Horse, he wasn't a part of that. He's in this fight to win, not to sign an agreement, not to take a deal. He began to view Red Cloud as a coward. The people he looked up to were weak. That's not how warriors fight. Crazy Horse never signed the Treaty of Fort Laramie. He took his people into the wilderness, and he said, we're going to keep the fight. To this day, we still have no signature on a piece of paper from Crazy Horse. His pen will never touch paper. No peace agreement, no journal. That alone skyrockets Crazy Horse to new heights. Because, yeah, a lot of Native peoples did take the deal with the Treaty of Fort Laramie. Crazy Horse didn't, and he was now their leader. Where Red Cloud unified many different peoples of the plains. Crazy Horse continued that. Also, 
a man named Sitting Bull will do so as well. They will say enough of the uh, tribal nationalistic differences, enough of these designations, uh, my tribe versus your tribe, my nation versus your nation. The Americans view us all the same. They want to wipe us out all the same. And if we don't work together, they're going to. So again, Crazy Horse and this new uh, also rival leader, Sitting Bull, they will work together, uh, become the new face of resistance of the Indian world in the West. And this is going to boil over. Now, years go by. Small skirmishes emerge in the West. It's pretty clear in places like New York and Philadelphia and so on, that's the new enemy. That's the new frontier. And again, a lot of men who made reputations for themselves in the Civil War will go out West, and they'll continue this fight. One of the most famous, I think one of the most compelling people I've ever studied, and most people would agree if they do study him, is a cavalry officer named George Armstrong Custer. Custer graduated from West Point uh, to be a cavalryman. Now, if you don't know what a cavalry is, cavalry is a soldier on horseback. But a cavalryman takes a special kind of person. Uh, grunt life, infantry life can be pretty tough, pretty dirty, not a lot of accolades. But a cavalryman on his horse is the picture of grace uh, and flair. Uh, George Armstrong Custer had long, curly, blonde hair. He wore all of his medals on his shirt. His epaulets were always perfect. He wore a giant yellow feather in his hat. He wore perfectly uh, unstained uh, white gloves, and he would parade through cities. He was the darling of the American military after the war. If you ask people in the 1870s who they thought about when they thought about the quintessential soldier, it was George Armstrong Custer. He was a pivotal general in in East Cavalry Field of the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, he was the best cavalryman the Union Army had to offer. Um, that's if you asked him. I mean, he was an egomaniac of the highest order. He believed he could take on uh, any uh, challenger. And really, until 1876, George Armstrong Custer did. He's a darling in American newspapers. Everybody knows him. Everybody loves him. He's a household name. I imagine he wasn't too happy that he had to then go west in the middle of the godforsaken wilderness and fight Indians. But he did it. Now, whenever uh, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse take their men who wouldn't sign the peace agreement in 1868 into the wilderness, they begin to encamp. And the camp goes from maybe 200 people to 400 people to 800 people uh, to 1,500 people to 3,000 people, all within the scope of about a year. And before long, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull uh, have what amounts to the single largest native settlement in North American history, we think. Uh, in maybe 500 years of North American history. Not since the fall of the great civilization of the Cahokia had you seen that many people amassed in one place. It was a temporary camp, but they were still there. And Custer will uh, lead a group of men to take on the challenge of eliminating that congregating threat. The idea was, in the American, from the American perspective, the Plains Indians were in rebellion. we got to get rid of them. We'll find the troublemakers and eliminate them. George Armstrong Custer will be part of um, a column of men. Uh, he leading one column, a commander named Reno leading another, a commander named Benteen leading a third, that will approach this force in 1876. They're going to approach them near the Bighorn River. 
in modern-day Montana. Now, the Battle of the Little Bighorn is one of the most studied events in American history. I think maybe in a future episode we'll go really into it, but I'll make it very simple for you. Custer has about 700 men with him. He sees the Indian village, and of course, even though he has specific orders not to engage, he attacks anyway because he's undefeated, because he's George Armstrong Custer. He's the darling of the military. He's a living legend in his own mind. He takes his 700 men into that camp. Awaiting him are upwards of 2,500 uh, Plains warriors of many different tribes. He's outnumbered more than 3 to 1. It's a disaster. His ego has put his men in a situation they cannot survive. And every single one of Custer's men, every single one, is killed. The Battle of the Little Bighorn. Now again, I could have made that really long and complicated. I don't need to. There's a lot of great stuff out there. I'll put some on the Twitter. I'll put some on the Facebook page. You can watch these documentaries. They're, they're wonderful. But Custer is killed. The entire force is annihilated. We call it Custer's Last Stand. The reality was it was a full-on rout. Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse eliminated with those warriors all of those American forces. In 1876, this happens. Exactly 100 years after American independence is declared, 1776. This happens June 25th of 1876. By the time everybody out east finds out what's going on, newspapers print the story on July 3rd, 1876. So the 4th of July, 1876, the Great Centennial is marred by this catastrophic defeat in the West. We call it Custer's Last Stand. Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, to them, it's their greatest victory. But the reality is, they didn't know it. It was actually their last stand. Because the American nation will take on uh, a full-scale assault on the Indian world. They respond in a number of ways. One of them is they greatly increase force. One of the other is, and they actually sit around in Washington and talk about this, they discuss calculated methods to eliminate the Indians themselves. They say, we can kill them all, that would take a long time, be very expensive, but instead, why don't we just eliminate their primary means of survival, the American buffalo. In the year 1800, we estimate there some, be to be something like 10 million American buffalo in the, Amer in the West by the year 1900, to give you some example, 24 years after the Little Bighorn, there's something like less than a thousand. Why? Well, they offered bounties in Washington, D.C. You kill a buffalo, don't eat it, don't skin it, just kill it. We'll pay you for the skull. And that's what they did. They literally paid people to go west and kill all the buffalo to exterminate the native peoples of the American West. It's one of the horrible things the Americans did, but a vital part of American expansion. But at any rate, let's talk about Crazy Horse, back to him. After that great victory, he and his people celebrate till 1877. Whenever he realizes, uh, as a leader, uh, he needs to make a decision that's not best for him, but best for his people. He'll go to an American fort in Nebraska, and he'll surrender. And the reason he does it is because winter is here, there's no food, his people are starving. He needs support. And his people do get protection from the American government. Now, how he dies is not controversial, but it's almost tragic considering the life he lived. The American commander at this fort in Nebraska demanded that Crazy Horse come along on an expedition against his fellow native peoples, this being the Nez Pierce tribe, 
uh, trying to escape into Canada, led by a man named Chief Joseph. As the story goes, Crazy Horse, who speaks no English, promises that if this is what my American brother wants, I will not rest until every Nez Pierce is dead. Of course, he doesn't say that in English. The translator gets it wrong. They inform the American commander that he says, I will not rest until every white man is dead. A little bit of a difference there. And as a result, Crazy Horse is thrown into jail. As he's trying to escape the, the imprisonment, one of his own men actually grabs him and holds him in place. And an American infantryman runs a bayonet through his kidneys, and that's the end. Kills him. Almost prophetic. Remember his vision quest. He was being held by his own people. Now, a lot of people really grasp onto that. Who knows how much is myth and how much is legend, how much is fact or fiction, but it's a fitting ending. But I think it's really important, and this is something that's that's I want to make pretty clear. You know, when I wrote my biography on Gaia Suta, it's not a happy ending for him. He loses in the end. So does Chief Joseph, so does Sitting Bull, and so does Crazy Horse. But isn't that the story of their people? A story of loss. Many, many warriors fought very valiantly against the expansion of the American nation, but they all lost. Uh, by the year 1900, the West was a very different place than it was 25 years earlier. It's a difficult subject. Difficult subject, but an important one. One of the things I would say is that, is for as much attention as the Civil War gets, the Indian Wars in the West in the 1860s and 70s really don't get that much attention. And there are battles out there. And there are battles that need to be studied. Now, there's a lot of reasons historians don't do it. One of the most important is that they don't like to go out and get their, their feet wet, so to speak. They don't like to get their hands dirty. You have to talk to people on Indian reservations when you do work like this. You have to listen to their family traditions, their oral traditions, and take note. One of my favorite stories is how we remember the Battle of the Big, Little Bighorn. Forever, the Battle of the Little Bighorn was Custer's last stand. He died, guns ablazing. There were no survivors, so we could write whatever history we wanted, but there were survivors. They just weren't Americans. There were a lot of Indian survivors. And whenever historians actually went out and talked to these people, they heard a very different story. They didn't hear the story of a heroic last stand. They heard a story of a rout, an annihilation, a total destruction. And a lot of people were angry about it. So archaeologists went to the Little Bighorn site. It's a national park. I encourage you to go in Montana. The archaeologists found the Indian warriors were totally right on. They basically told it exactly how the evidence showed it happened. But it's tough, man. I got to tell you, it's a hard study. We just had the 4th of July here in America, celebration of our patriotism, our freedom, our independence. We like to talk about the good things in this country, and there's a lot of them. But we don't like to talk about the bad. The American flag has a lot of stains on it. And by their nature, stains don't go away. But one of the things we have to come to terms with is that our nation was built on the ruins of many, many others, and they were Indian nations. I wish I could take credit for that line. Uh, Publishers Weekly actually reviewed my book on Gaia Sutta, and they used that. They said that. And, oh, I wish I could have put that in there. But I'll steal it now. What's well, a shameless plug. At any rate, thanks for joining us this week. As always, you pick the next one. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is wartime.